Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right, Corey, often on the podcast, we talk about the U.S. And it makes sense because we live here and because the U.S. is a major contributor to all these factors associated with collapse. But today we're going to be talking about two parts of the world outside of the U.S. And I'll just preface this by saying I will be happy if I never visit these two places in my entire life. You just offended every single person that lives in Antarctica. And Greenland. Yeah, but for, for reals, though, there are people that live in Greenland, so I don't know how they're going to feel about you saying you would never visit. Well, Greenland is the least densely populated region in the world, at least when it comes to something that's claimed as a place where people live. I'm guessing there's a reason for that. There is, indeed. And it's because roughly 80%, estimates are between 75 and 80% of the land mass of Greenland, which, by the way, is a large area, is covered in ice. And that's a good segue into why we're even talking about these two places is because there is so much ice there. And as we progress through climate change, the melting of that ice has the potential to make an extremely negative impact on society. It's potentially going to greatly progress and accelerate the collapse of society. Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about sea level rise in previous episodes, we've done an entire episode on sea level rise, but this episode is going to allow us to get more specific into the mechanisms behind what's causing sea level rise. Obviously, we're not going to get into every mechanism that's causing sea level rise. For example, warming oceans expand and that increases sea levels. T today, we're, we're going to talk about Greenland 
and we're going to talk about Antarctica. Kellen, you have taken the research on Greenland. I have taken the research for Antarctica. We're going to present what we found around the amount of sea level rise, what's causing it, and what can be expected in the future, just from these two very specific parts of the world. Good. So with that, we'll go ahead and start with Greenland. And by the way, a lot of times people get Iceland and Greenland mixed up, which is... They couldn't, they couldn't be more different. <laughs> yes. I was going to say it's understandable because... Greenland has ice and Iceland has green. Yeah, they should have their names reversed. That actually comes from the fact that apparently an Icelander named Eric the Red was exiled from Iceland for manslaughter. And so he was sent away with his extended family and with, I guess, his slaves or serfs. They set out in ships to explore an icy land known to lie in the Northwest. And after they found a spot there that they could live in, he named it Greenland, supposedly hoping that a more pleasant name would attract settlers. But I mentioned early on, I don't ever want to go to Antarctica. I don't ever want to go to Greenland. I would love to go to Iceland. From everything I've seen, it looks like a wonderful place. Indeed. There's a, a lovely documentary done with uh, Zac Efron, where he kind of explores alternative lifestyles, how to make the earth greener. I mean, it's, it's a good documentary. But he goes to Iceland in like the first episode, and it's, it makes it look pretty cool. Well, Greenland is located close to Canada. I, I thought it belonged to Canada, but in fact, it is part of the kingdom of Denmark. And so if you live in Greenland, you are a citizen of Denmark and of the EU. It's the world's largest non-continental island, and it is large. We're talking 836,325 square miles or over 2 million square kilometers. How many Floridas is that? <laughs> no idea. What about Manhattans or <laughs> bananas? Anything for scale? Uh, nope. You can go look at a map. All right. But maps distort the size of uh, northern and southern continents, though, as well. <laughs> so that's... Yeah, I didn't grab anything for scale, and I'm not going to look it up right now. Okay. But... In that large mass of land, in 2021, there were just 56,243 people that lived there, pretty much exclusively on the Southwest coast. Um, to give you an idea of what conditions are like, obviously a big land mass that is covered in ice is going to be very cold. And at its coldest, near the topographic summit of the Greenland ice sheet in 1991, the temperature reached negative 93.3 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 69.6 degrees Celsius. What's the coldest you've ever been in? I've been in the negative 20s Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, it is so cold that no matter how many layers you are wearing, it just hurts like in your bones. Instant freezing of your everything in your nose, your eyelids start to freeze. I remember one morning it was negative 31 on the way to school. I was in sixth or seventh grade and there was a thermometer at the bank right there and it showed negative 31. And yeah, it was just incredible. It hurt to breathe. So I can't imagine almost negative 100 degrees. That's wild. Yeah. So like I mentioned, 80% of the land in Greenland is covered in ice. It is the second largest ice body in the world, the first being the Antarctic ice sheet. Spoiler alert. I was going to talk about that later. <laughs> Sorry to steal your thunder. <laughs> when you think of this ice, the, the average thickness is about a mile thick or 0.9 of a mile thick. And at its thickest point, it's almost two miles thick. 
which is just insane to think about a mile up. Like a mile in distance is long, right? Running a mile. But when you think about looking up and going a mile into the air and imagining that just being solid ice, that's a, that's a lot of ice. It really is. There is so much ice. And what's so alarming about that is that as of 2022, the Greenland ice sheet has been losing ice for 26 years in a row. It's an area of the world that is especially vulnerable to climate change because of something that's called regional amplification or polar amplification. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but you know, when we've talked about it in the past, we've cited what a lot of people have said, which is that the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the global average. It turns out that that is even more extreme now. That estimate is based on older observations, but there's been a more recent acceleration. And so I'll read from one article here that states, by 2021, enough data was available to show that the Arctic had warmed three times faster than the globe between 1971 and 2019, as opposed to the global warming of one degree Celsius over the same period. And then it says, moreover, this estimate defines the Arctic as everything above 60th parallel north or a full third of the Northern hemisphere. In 2021, 2022, it was found that since 1979, the warming within the Arctic circle itself, which it says is above the 66th parallel, has been nearly four times faster than the global average. And it might seem like a bit of a mystery, something kind of bizarre, that with global warming, it is so much more accelerated at the poles, particularly the North Pole. But some of this comes from what we've mentioned, you know, when, when ice melts, the earth loses that reflective surface, that reflective ice. It, the albedo decreases and more heat is absorbed. So the ice melts away and there's more land or ocean that's exposed, which is darker and absorbs more heat. Another factor is that we've got all these frequent thunderstorms in the tropics that transport heat from the surface up to higher levels of the atmosphere and then global wind patterns sweep that up toward higher latitudes. So a lot of the warmer air gets taken from around the equator up north toward the Arctic. And then one of the main characteristics of the AMOC is this northward flow of warm water in kind of the surface ocean and a, a cold water return in the deep ocean. So all of that contributes to that polar amplification, making it so that climate change is impacting the Arctic much more severely than other parts of the globe. Yeah, it's been an interesting thing to watch them go from saying two times as much to three times as much. And you're saying in the very northernmost parts to four times as much. And I'm curious how that's going to change in the next decade. You know, is it going to continue to increase even as warming all over the globe accelerates? Are we going to see it become four and five and six times as fast in the Arctic, especially as we head towards a blue ocean event and losing all that Arctic ice. Yeah, and the scientific principle regarding that polar amplification states that the further the gap between temperatures, you know, around the equator versus temperatures in the Arctic, the more you're going to see the heating that takes place accelerated in the Arctic. But if those temperatures were to even out a bit more, where there wasn't such a gap, then it wouldn't be as accelerated. The problem there is that we're not just talking about sea level rise. We're talking about all of the fresh water that's introduced into the salt water. We're talking about it messing up the jet stream and the AMOC. And so there are so many 
big negative impacts, positive feedback loops and tipping points associated with the melting of all this ice. When we talk about how much ice is there, if the Greenland ice sheet were to melt away completely, which by the way, probably wouldn't happen for thousands of years, but if it were to take place, the world's sea level would rise by more than 23 feet or more than seven meters. And what's terrifying is that if the climate were to stop warming today or even cool a little bit, Greenland's ice would continue to melt. Researchers have said we have crossed that tipping point where there's kind of no turning back and that that was crossed in the early 2000s. So there's a scientist named Ian Howat from Ohio State University. He co-authored a research paper about this and he made this statement, glacier retreat has knocked the dynamics of the whole ice sheet into a constant state of loss. Even if we were to stabilize at current temperatures, the ice will continue to disintegrate more quickly than if we hadn't messed with the climate to begin with. And that ice melting just continues to accelerate for a number of regions, even regardless of the temperature itself. So for example, there's kind of this vicious cycle in which the melting reduces the height of the ice sheet, and that exposes it to the warmer air found at lower altitudes, which causes further melting. And because of those self-reinforcing feedback loops, the melting of Greenland ice keeps happening faster and faster than what anybody anticipates. One article says this, it says, increasing rates of global warming have accelerated Greenland's ice mass loss from 25 billion tons per year in the 1990s to a current average of 234 billion tons per year. Wow. So that's nearly a 10 times increase in the amount of loss. Yeah. So they've been trying to do these studies over time and see how it's changing. And in this case, they say, this means that Greenland's ice is melting on average seven times faster today than it was at the beginning of this study period. And that just highlights it is accelerating at such an extreme rate in such a short period of time. Because of that, you know, there, there was a recent IPCC report in which they predicted Greenland's melting ice would cause two to five inches of global sea level rise by 2100. But a newer paper, not from the IPCC, but uh, another research group who looked at satellite measurements instead of just computer models, they talked about this new 10 inch metric. And they weren't quite as specific on the timeline, whether it'd be by 2100 or some after. They said they're not sure, but they're talking about this melting ice, you know, just just 3.3% of Greenland's total ice melting and that that would cause sea levels to rise by 10 inches. So as I was digging through all this research, I just found that, you know, even finding a research paper from 2006 or from 2017, like it's already outdated because we've already outpaced the, the figures that they were basing their forecasts on. I noticed that a lot as well in my research. If an article is over like three or four years old, like you had to keep looking because that information was already going to be pretty out of date with how fast everything's changing. Yeah. So we're trying to keep up with it and we're struggling to because of the pace at which this accelerates. One lead scientist from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory was involved in one of these studies and made this comment. He said, 
there are climate projections that are based on models of varying levels of complexity and observations, but they have large uncertainties. Our study is purely an observational one that tests those uncertainties. Therefore, we have irrefutable evidence that we seem to be on track with one of the most pessimistic sea level rise scenarios. So we've had all of these really awful forecasts, these predictions coming to us for years based on models, but the models can't even keep up with the rate at which things are actually happening. So when we look at how bad things actually are from satellite imaging, we find that we're in line with the most pessimistic scenarios that were produced by the computer models. And to put that in perspective, when we talk about those inches of sea level rise, this other scientist, Andrew Shepard, he says, as a rule of thumb for every centimeter rise in global sea level, another 6 million people are exposed to coastal flooding around the planet. Wow. That's a fascinating perspective to view it in because you hear like an inch or five inches or 10 inches and you think like, what is that going to do? You know, but to hear one centimeter affects 6 million people, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And obviously he, he talks about it. That is just kind of a rule of thumb because there's so many factors there, but he says on current trends, Greenland ice melting will cause 100 million people to be flooded each year by the end of the century. And that's just, that's just Greenland. And Greenland is just one of the many factors that's increasing sea level. Yeah. And it's crazy because not only is it increasing sea level, but it's also feeding back in and speeding up global warming. So I'll read one more statement from one of these articles and we will link to these in the episode description, but it says, in addition to storm surges and high tides that will increase flooding in many regions, sea level rise exacerbates events like hurricanes. Greenland's shrinking ice sheet also speeds up global warming. And it talks a little bit more about that albedo effect, right? And the, the fact that as the ice melts, there's more solar radiation, which warms the planet even more. So it's just a reminder that there are so many negative impacts. One of the biggest news stories that has come from Greenland is that last year, you know, a bunch of news articles, reports came out at the end of August talking about how for the first time in recorded history, rain fell on Greenland's tallest point. So instead of snowing, it was raining. And that's two miles above sea level located at the very center of this Arctic island. And it says here that for two days following the rain, 337,000 square miles of the territory's ice sheet experienced surface melting in total 7 billion tons of water flooded the summit. And one thing that's especially scary about that is that when it rains on these areas in which the ice has already kind of softened from melting, that water sinks down below the surface and then freezes. That creates this layer of ice beneath the surface so that anytime there's more precipitation, it, it can't sink down anymore. It runs off and all of that runoff of water causes more snow and ice to melt. Right. As water runs downhill over that two mile decline, right? It's making its way. It's running into more snow, into more ice the whole way down and melting it all the way till it hits the ocean unless it freezes and causes the issues that you've just described. Exactly. And this is something that, you no, know, according to one scientist that was quoted here, he says the Greenland rain event is something not even scientists expected. And then he says, so what else is out there? That's the real concern here. There could be some surprises that we're not anticipating at all. 
And again, that just highlights the fact that even scientists continue to be surprised by what's happening in Greenland and the rate at which things are accelerating. Yeah, who knows if that's, you know, a, a one in 100 year event. I mean, obviously they weren't expecting it at all, but that could start happening happening more frequently. We might start seeing rains there every year. Who knows if we ever start seeing rains multiple times per year and what that type of thing does to melt. Yeah, and so this is becoming a major concern Sometimes when we are researching a topic, I will go search that topic on Google and then click the news tab to just see what recent news there is about it. And when I just search Greenland and then select news, I can look right here and see, you know, an article, sea levels might rise much faster than thought. Data from Greenland suggests that article is just from four hours ago. Greenland's frozen hinterlands are leaking ice faster than we thought. An article eight hours ago. Extensive inland thinning and speed up of Northeast Greenland ice stream seven hours ago. Melting Greenland ice raises sea level more than previously thought six hours ago, right? And I can just scroll for pages and see that this is a very hot topic, no pun intended, because what's happening there is very alarming and could have extremely negative impacts for all of us. With all the hundreds of different collapse-related topics to keep an eye on in the news every day, this is one that I find really interesting, especially because you read off those news articles that are all from today. And I, you know, hadn't heard about any of that in the mainstream news. The The article sounded like something that you would hear. We, you know, we probably heard that months ago and years ago. And, and they just keep saying it's accelerating more and more, faster than expected, faster than expected. And it gets really easy to hear that over and over again and to kind of start ignoring it. And whether they revise the numbers from two to five inches of expected sea level rise to eight to 10, if they further revise it to 15 or 20, like to the untrained ear, that just, it all kind of sounds the same, but it's interesting to hear you put it in perspective and talk about those 6 million people on average that may be affected for every centimeter of rise. And so that kind of leads us and transitions us to Antarctica, which is sort of a whole different world. It feels like it's in a different universe than Greenland and the Arctic. You know, everything happening in Greenland and the Arctic Ocean feels very imminent. It all feels like it's happening right now. Greenland is already adding so much to sea level rise to positive feedback loops, which are worsening warming and its effects. Antarctica is a little bit of a different story. And there's, a, there's actually a lot of sort of controversy around different sources citing different things about whether Antarctica is even a net loss or a net gain in sea level rise. But one thing is for certain, and it's that there is a lot of potential for sea level rise locked up in all of Antarctica's ice. Kellen, you had mentioned that Greenland offered a potential, I think it was something like 23 feet of sea level rise if it were to melt completely. Yeah. So Antarctica has a potential for over 200 feet of sea level rise. And obviously, again, like you said, a complete melt of Antarctica is not something to even think about or be concerned about. That's not going to happen. You know, in the time scales that we're concerned with, that type of sea level rise is out of the question. But sea level rise, no matter how much or how little is added, is a huge complication for the currently 40% of people on the planet who live in coastal areas. And obviously the disruption of those 40% and the movement of those people and the cessation of industry and supply chains in those areas affects the other 60%. These numbers are so big that they get ridiculous and it's hard to say what they really mean. The Antarctic ice sheet contains 30 million cubic kilometers 
which is 7.2 million cubic miles of ice. So how many Floridas fit in that? I don't have a Florida number for you here. Sorry, I bet it's a lot. I'm glad you asked. I can tell you that 70% of Earth's freshwater is locked up in Antarctic ice and 90% of all of the ice on Earth is in Antarctica. So when I think of 7.2 million cubic miles of ice, you know, we had kind of talked earlier about trying to imagine a mile straight up of ice. One cubic mile is going to be, well, a mile straight up and a mile wide and a mile long. And then you multiply that by 7.2 million. And that's how much ice is down there. So in what ways is Antarctica melting and what is expected to happen in the future? You know, Antarctica isn't just like a giant ice cube sitting out there with the sun beating down on it and it's floating in the water and just continuously melting, that would be a very naive way to look at it. And frankly, incorrect. Most of the melt that happens in Antarctica is not from like high ambient temperatures or from sunlight, but actually from water encroachment from down below. And so to dive into deeper into that, I think it's important to understand some of the geology of Antarctica, how Antarctica is formed, Basically, it's split into two parts. You have Eastern Antarctica and you have the Western side of Antarctica. Eastern Antarctica is a relatively stable area. It, it adds a lot of ice. It remains cold primarily throughout the year. And that ice primarily also rests on land. It's a large you know, land area. It's built up ice and snow over millions of years. The Western side of the continent, though, is a different story. So it's made of ice sheets, which are on land, but also ice shelves that hang out over the water. Melt from the west side of Antarctica currently accounts for an estimated 0.244 millimeters of rise per year. So it doesn't seem like much, but when you aggregate it with the rest of the sea level rise causes and the impact that, that has on those millions of people and the fact that it's accelerating and increasing every year, we're starting to move more and more towards serious issues. So one good example of what's happening in the West Antarctica ice sheet, you've probably heard a lot recently about Thwaites Glacier. There's been a lot in the news uh, over the last couple of years in this regard. So Thwaites is a extremely large glacier, which by the way, for some terminology here, we already said that an ice sheet is on land, an ice shelf is hanging out over the water. Well, a glacier is part of an ice sheet, which rests on land. Thwaites, Kellen, you're going to love this. Thwaites is the size of Florida. Oh, there it is. <laughs> or Syria. And it's roughly also a mile thick of ice. By itself, Thwaites currently contributes about 4% of total sea level rise all on its own. But the big kicker here is that if Thwaites Glacier by itself, this Florida-sized block of ice, if the whole thing melted or sank into the ocean, we would be looking at around 25 inches of sea level rise. And when you say sank into the ocean... Like if it detached and broke off into the ocean as ice, it would float, but it would still displace the water to the degree that you're talking about. Am I right? Yeah. So a lot of people get this part a little bit confused. That's why it's important to differentiate between an ice sheet and an ice shelf. So an ice shelf that's already hanging out over the water currently, it's already displacing that water, right? The ice cube is already in the glass of water. It melting is not going to change how, you know, how much water there is. It's not going to increase sea level. But a glacier or an ice sheet, which is on land currently, it's not displacing any water right now. So if it sloughs off, it's like adding ice cubes to a glass of water, which will obviously increase the water level. 
So when talking about Thwaites Glacier, there is a Thwaites ice shelf. So that shelf is at the base of the glacier. It is sticking out into the water. It's already displacing water. And that ice shelf basically acts as a cork. It keeps everything that's in the glacier from all flowing out into the ocean. It's a very critical piece to the whole puzzle because if you lose the ice shelf, well, then you're at risk of a much more rapid loss of glacier as it's more able to move unimpeded into the ocean. With Thwaites, there's something called a grounding line. It's basically the point where the land meets the ocean and the ice sheet on top also meets the ocean and becomes ice shelf. So with Thwaites, what's happening is that ice, that grounding line is actually receding. This isn't just happening on Thwaites, this is happening on a lot of other glaciers as well. Over time, as tides come in and out, water is pushed up into where that grounding line is, erodes away the land, and it also melts the ice from underneath, which pushes the grounding line back, which can destabilize the ice shelf itself. Another thing to consider with Thwaites is that the ice shelf sticking out into the water, there's something called a pinning point, which is basically where the shelf is pushed up against a ridge of land sticking up out of the water a little further out. So basically the friction from the ice shelf being pushed against that piece of land, that pinning point, is keeping everything from flowing out. Well, what has recently been discovered is that Thwaites ice shelf is about to shatter. They think that within now three to five years is all, and it will be basically disintegrated. It used to be believed that there was decades before that was going to happen. And that was a, a recent belief as well, with some of the most pessimistic models showing like 2030 and later for there to be a collapse of the ice shelf. And now they're saying, we think, you know, by 2025, 2026, the whole thing could go. Now, again, it's important to point out that the ice shelf going, if it disintegrated and shattered, that's not going to contribute to sea level rise on its own. It's then the flowing of Thwaites Glacier into the ocean that would do that. Thwaites is called the Doomsday Glacier, simply because of the fact that all by itself, two feet plus of sea level rise, and this process is becoming more and more imminent. Can I jump in and ask, what is it that is going to cause the shattering of the ice shelf that's holding back Thwaites Glacier? So recently a discovery was made that the water below Thwaites Glacier was extremely warm. There was some rapid warming events. Just last year, there was a moment when they sent down some sensors and things to investigate, and they found that the water was 40 degrees Fahrenheit, so well above melting, which is extremely rare for the area. And that water was causing a rapid melt from underneath. On top of that, you have the recession of the grounding line, which makes the ice shelf heavier. Uh, over the last five to 10 years, they've discovered very large fissures in the shelf itself, huge cracks forming. And as those cracks start to form, they kind of become these wedges that be, they get bigger and bigger and start to force the ice shelf apart. And basically the claim is that as we get a couple of those, uh, like, like in a windshield, there will come a moment where that glass basically splinters and shatters off. And they believe that that will happen with Thwaites Glacier. And once it does, it's no longer going to be held against that pinning point. The ice shelf will then float away as icebergs, and it's like popping the cork off of a bottle. That makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. And once that ice shelf breaks off, it shatters, it's no longer there to hold back the glacier, I can see why that's a huge concern. I know that glaciers move really slowly. 
So based on your research, is this something we see as an imminent concern? So Thwaites already moves much faster than a normal glacier would. Most recent estimates said that it moves at about a mile per year. There were no estimates that I could find as to how fast they expected it to, to accelerate once that ice shelf was gone. You know, does it go from one mile to two? Is it more? Is it less? I, I don't know. I couldn't find that. And what was frustrating to me, and I guess fascinating, depending on how you look at it, is, is that's the big question, right? Okay, you're talking about two feet of sea level rise, which would decimate cities all over the world. New Orleans would be uninhabitable. You know, it would start to have serious consequences for places like Manhattan. It would bury islands. And so you would think that in this entire conversation with the thousands of articles that are out there, that there would be some models to say, this is how long it's going to take to hit that. And I saw different estimates but nothing that was super concrete or that seemed to be agreed upon universally. So there were some that said they expected it to take centuries, others decades. And there was even one article I read that said uh, that, that their research led them to believe that it could empty into the ocean within as little as six months. <laughs> so who knows what, where the truth lies? It's probably in the middle there somewhere. It's obviously important to note that it wouldn't go from zero to two feet of rise. You know, if they say it's going to take 200 years, it's not like there's no rise until 200 years later when we add two feet. It is continuously adding to the sea level rise one centimeter at a time, like you've stated it, six million people affected at a time. So my hope is that in the coming months, hopefully or something like that, they'll come out with better ideas and models for, okay, if we lose weights, how fast can we expect sea level to rise? How long will it take for us to hit those two feet? What's interesting is that once Thwaites Glacier starts to slough into the ocean, it opens up other nearby glaciers to have similar issues. It basically weakens those glaciers as well. They say that a potential total of 11 feet of sea level rise if those glaciers were to melt. Again, timeframes on that are scattered. So the reason I bring up Thwaites is not to say that there's going to be two feet of sea level rise in our lifetimes for sure. And, and that one thing alone is going to cause all these issues, but it does go to show the potential that's locked up in Antarctica and which does pose a fairly imminent risk. Whether it's two inches or two feet, it's going to make a difference and is another important factor in the complicating, you know, catabolic collapse that we expect to unfold. And this is such a good reminder as to why it's hard to paint the full picture for any of us. I mean, we are 113 episodes into this conversation about collapse, each episode focusing on a different aspect or an important topic, and we are still adding to it and learning every single week. There's still so much left to cover. And to think that this one aspect of ice melting from Greenland and Antarctica could have alone such catastrophic impacts on humanity. And yet you talk about ranges between six months and centuries. It's so complicated, even understanding for scientists, accurate timeframes and risks from this one topic. And we see that across all these different topics that we look at and the way that those all play together and impact each other. It's no wonder we keep being surprised. Even with all of the brightest minds and the greatest scientific methods, we continue to have these moments where things are happening faster than any of us could have predicted. 
yeah, the events themselves are happening faster than predicted and new research keeps coming out that says, oh, and also things are going to continue happening faster than expected. There's a couple examples here from really new research coming out of Antarctica that shows that the whole thing is so much more complex than what was previously understood and that there is potential for more feedbacks than previously understood. For a long time, models haven't quite aligned with the actual results for expected sea loss. So models would say, we think that on an annual basis, we're going to be losing this much. And then they would go back and they'd use the empirical data and they'd say, oh, we actually lost quite a bit more than what was modeled. We don't know why, what's, what's happening that we don't understand. And there was a recent discovery that might help sort of answer that question. So using different types of radar, researchers were able to discover that there's actually a nearly 300 mile long freshwater river that runs underneath the Antarctic ice. And it flows between the ice itself and the bed of rock below. They say that the water flowing through that river is three times that of the River Thames in London. So just a massive flow of water. And the reason for this is that there's basically a, a minuscule amount of melting that's happening because of geothermal energy from the bedrock underneath. It's not a lot. We're talking about, you know, a millimeter of melt per year. When you compare that to a mile high sheet of ice, that seems like nothing. But when you just consider the sheer size of Antarctica itself, losing a millimeter is still a ton of water. And the weight from the ice sheets pushing against the land below, it creates this huge amount of pressure on that melted water. It basically pushes that water between the ice and the land, and that causes the ice sheet to float a little bit. It makes it a little bit buoyant. And for the longest time, researchers thought that Antarctic ice was frozen solid to the bed. And now they're saying there's almost a gap between it and the pressure is causing it to float. And what that does is it means that, number one, that water is able to continue the melt. As the freshwater flows, it's eroding away at the ice underneath. But also, that pressurized water allows the ice to slip more quickly. It decreases the amount of friction between the ice and the land below. So in the areas where glaciers are able to slough off, it increases the speed at which they can do that. Beyond even that still, once that river of ice hits the ocean, that fresh water pours into the ocean depths and it's replaced by warmer water from down below. So it pulls warm water to the surface, which then increases the melt of the shelves. It reseeds the grounding lines even more, which destabilizes those shelves, putting them at risk of accelerated collapse. So then the last piece of research here that I will mention that is uh, kind of just recently coming out is that there are more atmospheric rivers than before causing a lot of warming events in Antarctica. We've talked about atmospheric rivers in our arc storm episode in regards to California and the big one that they're waiting for and the, the big one, I mean the big flood. In this case, it's talking about those same atmospheric rivers bringing extremely warm temperatures from the north to the south, creating these warming events. And it's actually blamed for the loss of the Larsen A and B ice shelf and the potential total collapse of the Larsen C ice shelf, which is currently under a lot of risk. According to one article, it said that roughly 60% of the Antarctic Peninsula's calving events, calving is when ice breaks off of shelves into the water, 60% of those events came from atmospheric rivers. So as we know, we expect atmospheric rivers to increase as climate change intensifies, which again puts Antarctica at even more of a risk.
So the biggest thing to understand is that Antarctica, there's just so much unknown. It has just an absolutely unbelievable amount of ice and potential for sea level rise. And while it's not expected to melt quickly, because of all those unknowns, because of the feedback loops, because of the new research coming out, all those things could affect the expected rate of melt and again, increase the complications of sea level rise on the, on the global environment, economy, livelihoods of its people in the future. I don't personally worry about there being double digit feet of sea level rise in our lifetimes, but there doesn't need to be that much rise to cause catastrophic issues of our coasts and to exacerbate catabolic collapse. You know, you mix what we've talked about here with Antarctica, with Greenland, with warming oceans. And if that alone was the only issue that the world faced, it would be enough to cause serious problems, mass relocation of people. But as Kellen was just saying, it's not the only problem we face. It's one of hundreds of problems that we face and will have a dramatic effect on our lives over the course of the next 30, 50, 80 years. Well, there's so much there that is alarming, so much to think about in combination with all the other things. For those of you listening, thank you for tuning in. We feel like these are really important topics, which is why we take the time to do the research and try and share what we're learning. If you're this far into the podcast, still listening, and you haven't joined us on Patreon, please do so. That's where we talk about the events that are actually happening each week. And it's a great way to show support for what we're trying to accomplish here as we're building awareness. We've made it pretty clear through all these episodes that we can't prevent collapse. We're headed on that path, but the more that we can educate, the more people can take steps to mitigate it and to at least prepare themselves and improve their personal situation as we go throughout collapse. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.